as we progress through Romans chapter 11, we are actually take note that the future of the Jews is stressed here. Uh, people automatically, after Paul has written through all those chapters of Romans that we've been studying, looking at, would be uh, asking, well, what about the Jews? What is their status? Where are they at as far as God is concerned? Uh, has God now abandoned Israel forever? Has uh, He abandoned them because they abandoned Him? And we think about that and we look in Romans 9, 10, 11 and we certainly get a very clear answer and Paul has already answered that himself. He said, absolutely not. No, no way. And uh, we've looked at that several times and even last week he uh, again said, make Inatah in the strongest language that could be. That's why we would wonder why would people write off Israel and say God is done with them whenever we see clearly in this text what His plan is. And we notice as we uh, even look at it last week in verse 13, He was addressing the Gentile. In verse 13, it was uh, talking about uh, being prideful toward the Jews since the Gentiles have a privileged position. Do not take uh, an arrogant view. And so he, know, he knew what would happen that they would tend to do that because they have a favored status right now as compared to the Jews. And so the Jews, we know, were chosen to be God's people as a whole. And as a whole, they are a nation of unbelief. And so the Gentiles also could be in danger of being rejected by God also. And they, when they become an unbelief, that will also happen. And so he says, take heed, there is a warning. And I want you to listen, Gentiles. Now Paul is a Jew, but he has a heart for the Jews, but he is an apostle to the Gentiles. But as we looked at last week, he magnifies his ministry and not only going to the Jew first, then to the Gentile, he still longs for the Jew and preaches to the Jew what salvation is. So Paul stresses now to the Gentile in the present position that they are in, and even right today, 2,000 years later, it's still that same position, that even though they're in a privileged position, they are to never boast over the Jew about it. It's only by grace that we stand and we know that we were saved by the very grace of God. And if we stop believing in Him as uh, what this is saying here today, then it shows that we are not His and He will actually cut those people off if they are not truly His. But it seems that they are boasting over the Jewish people. And he knows that if you take that arrogant view, just as Israel failed, you too will fall. So the Gentile is to stand by faith because of the grace that is granted him. You know, uh, throughout the church history, the church has had falls. 
very much so. As we look here, it seems like it's pointing to the future, and it is. But we can look back in the past, and we can see how the church is falling. You know, the church at times was thriving significantly all throughout the world, different areas we know it has thrived here in America, hasn't it? And America has sent just tremendous amounts, uh, numbers of missionaries all over the world. And we think of the 17, the 1800s, and America was responsible for sending that good news out in a way that had never been done before. But yet, the church and anybody is very likely to presume upon the Lord if they don't keep humble and keep believing and trusting in Him. So it's happened throughout the history of the church. We know that during times of thriving, it's good, but many of those churches that were thriving have been now eradicated and eliminated. Cities and the church that was there that was even started by Paul or some of the followers of him, those churches are no longer there. And we know that today there are radically diminishing numbers in the body of Christ or what's the church. It is becoming smaller and smaller and smaller, diminishing. It's weak. It has been corrupted by liberalism, liberalism of the world that also gets liberalism into the church, bad theology, health and wealth kind of gospel, man-centered gospel where it's not focusing upon the glory of the Lord and His purpose and His plan, but it's about me. It's about what I can get out of this. That's why I go to church because it makes me feel good. Those are all the wrong reasons and that's why churches are diminishing ever more than before. Prosperity, uh, actually that seems so good sometimes, can actually bring a self-adequacy. And it's almost like we don't really need the Lord anymore. Now Christians would not say that, but I will say that sometimes whenever things are going really good, we tend to think we've done that. And we know our salvation is absolutely unmerited. We did nothing to gain our salvation. It's salvation by grace, grace alone. And we have faith in Him. So when we cease to trust in God, we drift away and we fall into sin. And because of the pride and arrogance of the church, it can fall. And as we get ready to close at the end of this message, I will give some examples of the church falling throughout the the history. There's been a lot of great things about the church, and I've spoken about those many times. I don't like to talk about the failures of the church and the falling, but it's before us, and history is there for a reason. It's for us to learn and to keep from failing as what's happened in the past. And uh, so um, the Gentiles that God had now turned to are in danger of falling away because of their attitude towards the Jewish people. What a pride they would have. By the way, when we say falling away, we know we don't believe in losing salvation, do we? 
So we'll try to explain that as it goes, but uh, we know that there can be a pride and arrogance amongst even the true believers. We are always warned about that. There's a danger of it, and Paul knew it, and that's why he addresses it here as what we are looking at today. There's a future problem that could be brought uh, into uh, the Gentile realm and they could easily be boastful over the Jew. And so we remember the verse that Paul spoke, take heed lest we too may fall. Quite a lesson in that. Let's grab our Bibles. What a joyful thing to do, isn't it? Grab our Bibles, grab the Word of God. Let's stand, let's read this section where we're at today. It's a pretty good chunk today. Um, 17 through 24 of Romans 11. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, being a wild olive, were grafted in among them and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree, Do not be arrogant toward the branches. But if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were taken off so that I might be grafted in. Quite right, they were broken off for their unbelief. But you stand by your faith. Do not be conceited, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, He will not spare you either. Behold, then the kindness and severity of God to those who fell, severity. But to you, God's kindness, if you continue in His kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree, and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are the natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? Let's pray. Father, great, holy God, Your Word, Your truth is awesome. And once again, as we go into the very Word of God, we understand that You're speaking to us too. As Paul was speaking to the Gentiles, You were speaking to them. And as we read this today, You are speaking to us, the whole church, And we too must take heed. Lord, we do not want to fall, but we want to be progressing, bearing fruit for your very glory. And help us, be reminding us always of having the attitude that you tell us to have as in this passage. In Jesus' name, Amen. The thing to remember now is Paul has turned his attention to the Gentiles. And he's telling them that they're not to be arrogant. And he talks about 
a tree, an olive tree. And an olive tree is very important to the Jewish society. It's important to a lot of people. Middle East, you get uh, a lot of olives, olive oil. Uh, and that is very important all around the Mediterranean area. So we know that that's a staple. And when you think of the olive tree, you think of Israel. And it was the livelihood of people for centuries and centuries and centuries and still is. So it's a key component to the way of life for the Jewish people. What Paul is doing here is making something very clear to us. This is not a parable in that sense. It's an illustration uh, and you'll notice the Bible does that frequently and Jesus is the master teacher and bringing parables to the Jewish people. And we know that a lot of times those parables actually that seem so easy to understand actually was hard for some other people to understand and they were actually blinded so that they would not see the truth. Jesus even said that. We've covered that before. But what my point is here in this text, I see no reason for anybody here to even get confused on what is going on as Paul is speaking about the grafting of a wild olive tree into a natural olive tree. It is so clear. I don't know why there has to be confusion to it. I don't have any kind of secret tunnel into this truth here that God gave us and I'm going to explain such a mystery to you because you don't understand it. And we have to really work hard at it. We don't. It is before our eyes. There is nothing that we can do about it other than here it is. But I want to tell you, there is something, at least one commentator said, at least six interpretations of this. Now, Paul is wanting to make it clear, and then you have these writers today and come along and they muddy it up like the Missouri River looks like. And that's not Paul's intention. And when you look at it, it's just as it is stated. And it's been in context from 9 and 10 all the way into 11. He's been saying... The same thing, he just gives us different ways of saying it. He comes to this and he draws a picture. <clears throat> a picture is worth a thousand words. And it's really what he's doing here. Uh, I know there can be some nuances in this, but really just get the straightforward idea as he has been carrying forth. It's nothing new that he has just stated in the very previous verses. And uh, so we look at a simple, not complicated situation here. If you take Abraham, we kind of introduced that last week. Of course, Abraham is the very, like, the beginning of the Jewish race. God used him and to, to be the progenitor of Israel. And then, of course, he had Isaac and Jacob, and then there were other generations. Well, actually, you see here that we get an idea that Abraham was the root of this olive tree that he's comparing it to. He's the root, he's the very beginning. 
it's not hard to understand, and we kind of uh, started looking at this a little bit back in 16. If the first piece of dough is holy, the lump is also. And if the root is holy, the branches are too. They're set apart. Although there are chosen people within this nation of Israel, even that being the case, they're going to be ones that are not going to be believers, and that was Israel's problem at this time. But the fact of the matter is, is that these, this is a holy root that takes place. And the branches are holy because God has set this nation apart. He has started with Israel all the way through and there's no reason to make Israel mean something else and we cannot do that. And by the way, I've found out that most reformers actually do believe that what we're talking about here, whether they're all millennial or premillennial, the fact of the matter is almost all of them actually believe that this is Israel, the nation, by blood. Uh, now, Luther and Calvin did have differences of view on this and some other ones as time went forth, but we see throughout Puritan history they recognize this as the true Israel of being the Jew of Jewish blood and uh, also being believers within that nation. So they're Jewish, they are believers, and they're from Israel. Uh, so, but there are there's an Israel that fell. That's not the church, is it? This Israel fell. What is it? It's the nation as a whole. Uh, we know that they rejected Jesus Christ. We know he came to his own, and his own received him not. And so there it is. We had that uh, written down by John. Of course, Jesus was not received. He knew that. And uh, so he goes to the Gentiles. And then uh, after the Gentiles course is done, he goes back to the Jew. So it's that easy to state. And I saw the Puritans and I even saw Jonathan Edwards. Uh, and uh, uh, I think it was uh, one of the Mathers that stated that this has to be Israel just by the context. Regardless of what their thought of the millennium is, and even Edwards even mentioned the millennium, it wouldn't be maybe what we hear so much today, uh, but he believed in a time period where Christ would rule and reign and, and the nation Israel would be there. So as I looked through there, I saw many Puritans of uh, uh, English uh of Scottish, uh, also we think of Holland, uh, and then other places and all the way to the west here in America. And so I would say they far outnumber the people that would say that there is no such thing as the people of Israel. Because God is done with them and He has no other plan other than He'll save some Jews that go through that time. And by the way, I've said before, I've even ran into some people that, that say that Israel doesn't even exist. The Jews have been depleted. They're done. God is finished. And I say, well, what about that pe the people that are over in Israel, for instance, or the people we have here in New York, or the people that are in Russia and such? And he said, oh, they've intermarried and they've lost. That race is gone. And he goes against the grain of even uh, Calvin, 
and Luther, because they definitely believed that that race existed at their time. And uh, that is kind of standalone theology, and that is almost an arrogance, wouldn't you say? I believe that's boastful over the Jewish people, because that's going against what God's whole plan is. It's three points. It's he had to reject the Jews because they rejected him over and over and over and over and over again. How many times do we have to put over and over? Well, just it's almost endless. And then he goes to the Gentiles, and of course, most of the Gentiles reject Jesus too, but that's who he's working through. There's a partial hardening to the Israelite, as we will see next week, and at the same time, the Gentile time has to be fulfilled, and then he goes to the Jew. It's very simple. It's a three-point outline. He rejects the Jews, turns to the Gentiles, and then he turns back to the Jew. What a plan that is. It's incredible. And then as he finishes chapter 11, he says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. It's all about God. The reason we're studying this, I don't have a hobby horse to be hitting on, you know, about uh, the Jewish people and, hey, you know, we must help them and, and, you know, help them build the temple. And, you know, a lot of uh, evangelical Jews are doing that to keep, you know, make prophecy happen. But what I'm saying is, what does the clear Word of God say? It's just like God. But yet it sounds strange that He rejected people because they rejected Him. He says, okay, that's it. Now I'm going to go over here, and that's going to be it then. And I don't see that in Scripture anywhere. I don't see one verse that even says that. If it did, then I would be, I'd be looking for that. And then I'd say, we need to resolve this issue. Uh, that's why I say, it, it is so clear. And so when we see this, we see this interpretation, I think, that we can understand. God has a purpose. God has a covenant. That's what our whole lives are about. To glorify God's very purpose. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. His will, His purpose, He has a plan. He's not just willy-nilly coming up with it as times change. And you get a different government here in this country, and then you have wars, and you say, oh, I better twist this over here now, you know. You see, he's been in everything, and he's appointed the leaders, and he's appointed the very way that they should go because of their unbelief, and eventually he turns them over to their own lust and what their own will is. And so here we have God's plan at stake. The thing is, is uh, his purpose and covenant with his people is being fulfilled whether they trust him or not. And we know it's not with every Jew individually. Paul has pointed that out. He chose certain ones. Jacob I loved and Esau I hated and on and on. And he's done that. He's a sovereign God all the way through. And those Jews, the nation, who will repent... Uh, Believe in Him. They'd be saved individually. They are today. have been for 2,000 years. Not in big numbers. But by the time we get into our text next week, it shows that whatever all Israel is, and we'll get to that, they will be saved. And I will at least say that anybody who's an expositor, even on the Reformed faith, even if they're all millennial, will admit that it's a huge number. 
Some of them will say it's just at the time that Christ has come back. Some of them say, I can't tell you when it's going to be, but it's going to happen in huge numbers. So I've got the weight of even Reformed theology, the great teachers of yesteryear and today, on our side. And really that doesn't matter because it comes down to this. And uh, it's not because, hey, this such and such a group, I'm with them, so whatever they say is going to be true without looking at the truth. That's what we're all about, isn't it? So we know that there's going to be a mass of Jews as a nation who will repent. They will be saved as a nation of Israel. And uh, so you Gentiles don't ever forget it. Don't you ever be arrogant towards that group of people. So he says, but if some of the branches were broken off in verse 17, who are they? Who are some of those branches? Those are unbelieving Jews. They didn't believe in the Messiah. And go back to Jeremiah 11, verse 16. And as often we do, we go back to the Old Testament for support. You remember hermeneutics is this. The Word of God interprets the Word of God. Scripture supports Scripture. We take Scripture very seriously here, don't we? It's what our belief is all about. We believe in this. So Jeremiah eleven sixteen says, The Lord called your name. Here he's talking about Israel. A green olive tree, beautiful in fruit and form. This is who God had chosen. With the noise of a great tumult, he has kindled fire on it, and its branches are worthless. That is the nation of Israel, and as a whole, it has branches that are worthless, they are broken off. And we see in the next verse, the Lord of hosts who planted you has pronounced evil against you because of the evil of the house of Israel and of the house of Judah, which they have done to provoke me by offering up sacrifices to Baal. They went into absolute idolatry and they did the worst of the worst. And that's when God says, there are broken branches, I'm going to cast them off. So the unbelieving Jews are the branches that are broken. They were not fruitful. They were broken. They were not believing. God wants fruitfulness. Learn, uh, let's take a look at uh, John 15. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit He takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, He prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. So there's branches that He has to clip off and take away and say they're losing salvation. No. There are ones that bear fruit. And what they do is they show that they are worthy because of what God has done with them. And He trims them. They are true believers, but there are people who pose as true believers who are really not. So now we go to verse 5. 
Again, it's the same thing. I am the vine. Jesus says, you are the branches. Hey, I'm the vine. You're the branches. You live in me. He who abides in me, abides in me. Hupomeno means to stick around. To stay. To remain. Those who remain in me. See, the ones who remain prove that they are real. The ones who do not remain prove what? That they never were real. Now we can say that's right. We can't lose salvation. Because there are ones who look real that were never ever real anyway. They were not of us as it says in 1 John. They abide in me and I in him. He bears much fruit for apart from me you can do nothing. If you're not in Christ you will not have fruit. You can do nothing. You are absolutely helpless. Go down to verse 8. My Father is glorified by this that you bear much fruit. And so here you go. Prove to be my disciples. And there it is. You prove that you're real because you stick around. You hippomeno. You remain. You bear fruit. If you're a Christian, you bear fruit. You will bear fruit. It's guaranteed. If you're not bearing fruit, then you're not a Christian. Bearing fruit. Uh, we have the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Those are things that are the characteristics of who God is, who Christ is. And if we are Christians... We do have that fruit. Some have 20-fold, some have 40-fold, some have 60, 80-fold. But we will bear fruit. We will bear much fruit because we are His. And He's going to make sure that we will bear fruit and prove that we are. Uh, so that's what He means for those who stick around. That's what perseverance of the saints is all about. Because you can't do it on your own. It's all by His grace and the Holy Spirit working in us. And aren't you glad of that? Or elsewise, we would all lose our salvation. So, uh, we go back to our Romans. And I know we're starting really slow here as we say, where are we at, Dennis? Are we halfway through this text? No, we're at verse 17 still. Yep, if some of the branches were broken off, who is that? That's easy now, isn't it? That's the Jewish people who were not real believers. And you, being a wild olive tree, you're not natural. You're out there. You don't have the oracles. You don't have the Word of God. You don't have the temple. You don't have the sacrifices. You were not blessed with that. You were outside. These are the Gentiles, a wild olive, were grafted in among them. Because there are many that are real Jews, and you, being the wild olive, were grafted into them. So now you are the branches, and they are the true branches, and you become partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree. The rich root. The wild olive tree is grafted in. Now, that's unnatural branches. Gentiles. To the Jew first, then to the Gentile. 
Gentiles were put in to the covenant. Who had the covenants? Israel did. God didn't take it to the Gentiles until He turned to them. Now, there were Gentiles saved throughout, but Gentiles were put into the covenant of God for eternal blessings, even though the wild olive tree was one of the most worthless trees <laughs> of all. That's good for self-esteem, isn't it? We didn't have, and when I say we, I'm talking about the Gentiles as a whole, didn't have those blessings that were first given to the Jews. God had a plan, though. Yeah, I'm going to turn to the Gentiles and I'm going to work through the Jews and reveal it to them and then it's going to go to the Gentiles. He long planned that. It's a mystery. This whole thing is a mystery and that's why when we get into next week we get the word mystery there and mysterion which is going to be something that is revealed and it doesn't leave us hanging. Now, we, if we're talking about uh, Abraham being that seed, the very one who got this started in Romans 4, in verse 11. And this is about Abraham being justified by faith. It says, He received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith. It was just a seal, circumcision was. Righteousness, faith. That's We all need righteousness, don't we? It's Christ's righteousness. It comes as a gift. Which he had while uncircumcised, Abraham, wasn't circumcised. He wasn't a Jew yet. He's the one that was the first Jew. God made him that way. So that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised. He's the father of the uncircumcised. Who is that? That's the Gentiles. And the Jews are the circumcised. For all who believe the Gentiles, guess what? We enter into that covenant too. That righteousness might be credited to us. Justification by faith, right? We gain Christ's righteousness. And the father of circumcision, he's the father of the circumcised, which is the Jews, to those who not only are of the circumcision, but also follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham. The ones that are circumcised are the ones who are Jews, but yet there are people of the Jews, the race, who are believers. They follow in the faith of Abraham. Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. Those people of faith, just like Abraham. We Gentiles, saved by the same way, grace. It's faith. Righteousness being granted to us. And Abraham did that while he was uncircumcised. So he was a Gentile who became a Jew. And he's the father of all who believe. Because he believed, we believe. Because of the promises that have been made. Galatians 
I know we're reiterating a lot of the same stuff that we have been. Romans 9 through 11 and all through Romans. But you know what? After a while, this stuff starts sticking, doesn't it? Galatians 3.29, remember this verse? And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. What do you believe? The promise. That's how you become a believer. You say, what? You, you mean I don't have to do this? I don't have to do this and this and this and this? I don't have to wear certain clothes? And I don't have to have a hairstyle exactly the same as everybody else? or what? No. It's a matter of believing that Christ is the Messiah. You believe it, you confess it. And you live a life that is according to Him because of His power that's in you. You bear fruit. So it's nothing you do. It's what He works in you and you just work it out. You be obedient to what you know to be true. So, here is the deal. William Ramsey quoted from, from a Roman writer this, when an olive tree produces badly, a slip of wild olive is grafted on it and this gives new vigor to the tree. See, some people have doubted whether this could even happen at all, but Paul is making analogies, so he can do whatever he wants. And I think Paul knew he's taking something that they were familiar with. It's not natural to take that wild olive tree and put it into this. But if that uh, natural olive tree is not doing good, that's what could happen to give it new vigor. Another one said the wild olive graft invigorated the tree on on which it was set. It invigorated the tree. It's like it gave it a new life. Now, I don't think we as Gentiles gave new life to this tree of uh, Jewish believers because we can't do anything. But now it takes on you know, more of a fulfillment that has always been stated by God. It was... It would be utterly unnatural that God would work in such a manner to save Gentiles, wouldn't it? But God is a God of mystery. He does things, He thinks things that we do not. We would have never come up with this plan. Okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to, have, I'm going to save a nation. I'm going to get a, a nation started. And I'm going to choose people out of there that are going to be believers. And then as a whole, they are going to deny me. And then I'm going to go to the Gentiles and I'm going to save them. Their time is going to be done. And then I'm going to go back to that nation. And just to show you my grace and mercy that I have, I'm going to save them all. You say, that's not the way that God works. Oh, why not? Matter of fact, His gifts, His calling is irrevocable. And we'll see next week, it just shoots down any man-centered type of thought here and saying, well, I saw that he, uh, he forgot about them. So, uh, you know, and, and you look at it today, look at them. They're all atheists and they're bad people. And look what they've done to America. And, and you look all over the world. People talk about that way. And yet, it, God says, I'm going to take an unnatural way here. If God did the unnatural thing in saving Gentiles... How much more should we expect for Him to do the natural thing eventually and bring 
the Jewish nation into the natural olive tree. It would be more natural that way. So if he did something that's unnatural, he can certainly do that. God can do anything he wants, can't he? Who are we to limit him and say he can't do that? He's already turned his back on it. See, that's it. He's done. One of these days, there's going to be a future widespread belief in their own Messiah. You see, we go back to our Romans now. The rich root of the olive tree, verse 18, do not be arrogant toward the branches, the branches that were cut off. But if you are arrogant, Gentiles, remember that. It is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. Root, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the fathers, the nation of Israel, and all the descendants that were believers. Are you getting this? You're not the root. You were brought in unnaturally. The root, that tree is what is supporting you. That's the way that, that God planned it. The root supports you. Galatians chapter 3, verses 6 through 9. Even so, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Comes right out of Genesis. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. The Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the Gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations will be blessed in you. Who's that? Us. All the nations. Not only His descendants, but all the people of the world in different nations. It's God's plan. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. He is the root. Israel is the root. We are the branches unnaturally that have been put in there. We don't support what has already been done. It supports us. Verse 13 and 14 in the same chapter. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham, and there we get it, what is all about, it's Christ, might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. There you have Christ. You have the Spirit of God. You have faith there. All given by God. And the Gentiles make it up. We are put in there. And so we see God's plan. We are true spiritual children of Abraham because of faith and of promise. Isn't that beautiful? Gentiles get in because of the faith and the promise of God. 
It's not to boast and it's not because we are something valuable that can be added to that tree. We have no inherent claim whatsoever. We have no inherent claim to anything. The way of salvation was made known through these Jewish people. It was made known to Israel and Jews were beneficiaries of that revelation that God gave them. But they benefit only by believing, trusting in Jesus Christ. And so there's one people. But there are nations. And God still has a plan for that people that He originally worked through. And so therefore, we, it makes a lot more sense whenever we say here, okay, now put plant church in the place of Israel if that's the case. That means the church fell. Uh, the the church is um, broken off. We've got problems with that. We have to take it as is. And there's hardly anybody that I respect at all throughout church history that that's the way they take it. And so therefore, it, it's becoming an oddity in our times that we would want to twist this around and say they don't exist. Or God has no more plan for them. Or He has individuals in the plan in this. And there's one people, so therefore there's one way of salvation, which is very, very true. But can He not also take a nation that He started and come back to them? And that's what's overwhelming in all of this. I can't deny it. I can't see it any other way. I see it as clear as a bell as Paul is putting it forth here. Regardless of what preference we desire to line up with, if they are wrong on this, you have to depart from that particular thought where they're at. 99% of the other things, they might be absolutely right. But if you take this way, you have the Old Testament to argue with. You have this 9, 10, 11 argue with. Matter of fact, the whole Bible and argue with God about it, right? Well, you can't argue with Him because it's all set forth right here. He says, this is what I'm telling you. So now we go to verse 19. Uh, this is about do not be conceited. It sounds like the same thing. Don't be arrogant. Don't be conceited. You will say then, branches were broken off. Who are those? That's the Israelites, right? So that I might be grafted in. So what's a, what's a Gentile thinking? My, what a privileged position. Quite right. Paul says, I agree with you. Exactly. They were broken off for their unbelief. And a lot of people would like to leave it right there. But it doesn't allow us to do that because it says, but you stand by your faith. Do not be conceited, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, and get what we are talking about, He will not spare you either. That's humbling. And I think it's enough for even Christians to examine themselves. And you know, sometimes, yes, we are people uh, uh, blessed by God's grace and we're trusting in Him, but you know, Sometimes we really need to look at our lives, what we're doing, what we're saying, 
What's our ideas about God? Where's it, where are our lives at right now? Examine yourselves to see if you're in the faith. So it almost seems very dangerous to look at this text because we're talking about being cut off. Talking about falling away. You're talking about uh, being so conceited that uh, God would not spare you. These are frightful passages. And I do believe that we do need to not only focus upon the very love of God and the very grace of God, the very goodness and the kindness of God, but we also are to focus on the fact that He is holy. And it's glorious. And He judges unrighteousness. He judges sin. And so therefore, that's where this comes into play here. The Jewish branches were broken off so that in God's providence, the gospel might come to the Gentiles. You notice it's all God's providence and His will. The Jews' rejection had been a source of our blessing, folks. They are enemies for our sake, as it will say in our text next week. We got the blessings because in God's plan, He only had some select there, the rest fell. But ultimately, the plan has one more part to it. It's to drive the Jews back to God. You like that? I really do. That tells me that if He did away with them, what's to say He could do away with us? He's made promises. Okay? Then He could get rid of us. That's what a Gentile would be thinking though too. Okay, He got rid of them. That's why 9, 10, 11 is here too. It's not only about the Jew, but it's about the Gentile. It's really about not even that. You know what it's about? God's purpose. That's the way that God planned it. That's the way that it's going to come through and it is coming true and it will come true ultimately to where we're pointing next week. That partial hardening. Hope you're ready for next week because that's almost the sunum bonum of this chapter. Only there's one other part after that. It's right at the end. It's a, and really it's what all this is about. It's about the glory of God. That's all I can say about it. It's all about His glory. You can say, well, Dennis, I think you're just making that up. Uh, I've heard dispensationalists have that. Uh, well, uh, I don't care what they're called. Do they believe what we've just said? Now, they might have a lot of nuances that we disagree with, but the fact of the matter is, is just what we put forth as very clear that there's a nation. The Jews' rejection had been a source of the Gentiles' blessings, but ultimately the plan has this one more part. It's to drive the Jews back to Christ, and this plan is God's plan. <coughs> then why would any believing Gentile ever be arrogant over the Jew and say this? God's done with them. <laughs> That's what I have heard from many of my colleagues. Pastors of churches. I don't care what Israel is. They don't matter anymore. <coughs> Actually, I heard them say that. I go, you've got to be kidding me. What about Romans 9, 10, 11? They just blow it off, pass it off. 
the Jews were broken off for unbelief. They are to have faith, as Romans 1, 16 and 17 says. Do you remember that? And this is the heart of the book of Romans. This was the heart of the Reformation. It's why we were taken out of Catholicism because of this text. Now, God could have used different men or a different way, and He still does that. But here's a scripture, though. For I'm not ashamed of the Gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Everyone who believes. To the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed. This is how you stand righteous before God. So I'm not righteous. No, no, no. If you're a Christian, you are righteous because you have the righteousness of God. If you stand unrighteousness before a holy God, you better start crying out for salvation right now because you're lost. Christian, you have righteousness. The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. You are righteous and you live by it by faith. <clears throat> faith it is. And what's the opposite of faith? Well, fear. But in this case, <clears throat> it's kind of a part of it. They were broken off for their unbelief, but you stand by your faith. You stand in that. Do not be conceited, but fear. Fear God. Fear, because if God didn't spare the natural branches, He'll not spare you either. If you take that kind of attitude, you really be, need to examine yourselves. And you think, wow, do they really believe God's Word? How can they go against this? He'll not spare you either. Don't be arrogant. Don't be conceited. God will not spare you. Now, you know, and this is what I was pointing back earlier, and I said by near the end of the message, and we're, we're right there now. Did you know that there have been churches cut off? Churches that were tremendously graced and blessed by God. There was a church in Asia Minor. See, I've heard about Asia Minor. It's, it's, it's in the New Testament somewhere. What's Asia Minor? Well, you think of the area of Turkey. I want you to think about that. Think about its history, though. This was the first major area of where the ancient Gentile world was evangelized because of Paul's travels. You know his journeys? The cities included these. Listen to this. Derbe, Iconium, Lystra, Ephesus. And then, as a result of that, it, we didn't know that it was in Rome, but from Ephesus to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Philadelphia, to Laodicea. We see those in the book of Revelation, among other places. So in the first century, this is where the church was going. It was going very early when Paul was taking it out to those cities. They were greatly blessed by 113 A.D. 
Now John, who wrote Revelation, the last of the apostles, went all the way till 95 A.D. That's John, wrote Revelation. 113. Within a couple of decades, you have Pliny the Younger. You ever heard of him? Like his writings that we can look back at today. And he proves that there were people like, there were Christians around. Now, he said this to Trajan, and it is actually complaining. Trajan is the emperor at this time. And he says that the new faith, he's talking about Christianity, was affecting the older worship. What's that? Idol worship. You know, the Roman world. And all their patterns. And people were neglecting the ancient gods, he said. And the temple revenues that they had. People were being converted to Christ. The church was growing. What a blessing it was. Did you know that we have the early church fathers that played a tremendous role in the church? Now, they're not the apostles, but they're the ones right after the apostles. And they're no better than any of us. But they're ones that God used back at that time, and it proves the Christian faith was around. Irenaeus was from Smyrna, in that area. Basil and Gregory were from Cappadocia. Uh, men who were defenders of the faith. They stood for the deity of Christ. They stood for the fundamentals of the Christian faith that you cannot give in to. Uh, and of course, at this Christmas season, you think of the Incarnation. God becoming Son, the Son of God, living here. He always was the Son of God, but becoming a man, walking in the flesh. And this was all during that time of the second century, first and second century. Where is the Church of Asia Minor today? They played a key role, didn't they? Wow, how blessed they were. Well, it faded. The gospel became moralism and was sooner or later eaten up by the Muslims as snuffed out Christianity. That's what happened to great churches at that time. Ephesus. You go there, you don't see the church there today. You don't really see much of anything there today. How about the church in North Africa? church has a lot of history. You see how God blessed but we're talking about a falling away, a cutting off. Now, were there true believers in here that didn't get out, caught off? Well, absolutely. If you are His, I do want to pronounce to you that they go to be with the Lord. We know that. They are not cut off as individuals. But these churches that were so great, they were diminished to nothing. The church in North Africa, great early church fathers that God blessed and explained the Bible to people and preach the Word of God very early on. Tertullian, Cyprian, they came from there. Alexandria, which was one of the major centers for all of theology. Augustine from Hippo, which you might heard of, was one of the most significant of theologians from North Africa. Boy, did they ever produce a lot of great theology. We are thankful to God for them. 
But those churches, I'm not talking about these individual men who are believers, but that church, those churches diminished. Christianity fizzled. And the Muslims dominated in North Africa. How about the church in Italy? Well, sad there you have the Roman church, uh, the, the church there. Ultimately, we know that Paul wrote a letter to them. It was strong from there. People knew all about them, but uh, they wound up persecuting Christians for quite some time. That's whenever really the church was probably at its strongest, when it's being persecuted. But it became very easy to worship there after Constantine saw a symbol and uh, took it that it came from God and uh, he conquered and overwhelmed and all of a sudden overnight Rome and Italy became Christian. They were all more or less forced to be called Christians. No longer were they pagans worshipping pagan gods. They were now supposed to be worshipping the one true God. Uh, a lot of problems there, we know, with that. But I will tell you, throughout the Middle Ages, the Word of God was diminished. It became smaller and smaller. Man's traditions started coming in. And the Roman Church got far from what the true scripture said and it got to where the Bible was not being able to be understood or even read. The common person was never to read the Bible. And it was to be read in Latin, so if you are uh, not speaking Latin, which most of the people were not uh, throughout those later Middle Ages and such, well, you're out of luck. Uh, only the educated would know. The Roman church seemed to triumph, didn't it? It's still here today in all of its godliness and all of its gold and all the wealth. The evil, powerful, secularized institution that we have today right with us still exists. The Gentiles fell away from their calling right there in Rome. And Paul wrote this letter to the Romans. And what did the Roman church develop into? It still exists today. But some of the things that you'd think we'd be believing in is something absolutely different than what you're talking about because they do not and will not confess to by grace alone. It's grace plus works. It's faith plus works. It's the church plus what you do. It's Christ plus what you do. The Gentiles fell away. Okay, you can say, yeah, then change, things changed. We had the Reformation and we are blessed because we got back to the Word of God. It was printed uh, as at that time where the, the Bible came into the common man's hand. He was able to read it for himself. A Reformation burst out. The heirs of the Reformation tend to boast over the Catholic Church. And so I'm not trying to boast over them, but I am saying this is what they believe, this is what they do. Uh, we know that we praise Luther and Calvin and other reformers, but we too must be careful, even with a rich heritage like that, remember the decline that took over the Reformation churches. You see, Semper Reformandi is what it's all about. They have to keep reforming from one generation to the next. Just because one generation has it doesn't mean the next one does because the next one can get far from it. 
Once it was a dominant influence. Reformed theology was all over Europe. It dominated. Germany spread out from there. Or Luther, who we know, went to Switzerland. Even France. Up to Holland. And the churches were blooming out. And some of the greatest theologians of the era and of all time gave us books that we benefit from today. Their preaching was expository. It was uh, at the height. But it doesn't last forever. Those churches that were so tremendous, you know, if you go to England, you'll see edifices. You'll see ancient churches still standing. But uh, they're no longer churches, or they are, and nobody goes there anymore. You can take pictures of them, but they're empty. They're just a shell. The church is God's people. If you go into Switzerland, you get the rich heritage there of Calvin and Knox and Bucer, all of those guys that gave us such rich theology. You think of Holland and you think of what happened there, tremendous theology they had there. But the churches forgot the gospel. They became weak internally. And very few in all over Europe attend church today. This Sunday, I think, what are they, six hours ahead of us or something like that? How many people do you think were really going to church today in London? Or anywhere else for that matter? Maybe 1% at best. It's not even an important day. It's not even set apart. People work there just like they work any other day. It's not important. All over Europe, that's what's happened. This is why those people got us the Word of God. They got it back, got it translated. How about the church in the West? A small percentage in England, as I say, and then expanded, went on. Puritans and their theology came to America. And we've become less significant, not really meaning too much to our culture today. Even 10 years ago, 20 years ago, it just gets worse and worse. I'm not trying to paint you a a bad picture of the church, but I will tell you that I think it's being trimmed down to who the real ones are. And I think the true ones will show who they are when they need to show, or when God needs to show it. Many people also in particular churches go to church today right here in America and consider themselves Christians, but they have no idea of who Christ even is. They've heard of something about Him being born on Christmas Day, and they know something about Easter, but could they tell you anything? about their faith, what do they believe, what is it that they really trust in, what is it about. Well, we finish this up now. It's about the kindness and severity of God. And this is the most beautiful part of all this. It's the character of God. We've seen how His plan is, don't we? Let's look at the character of God. Behold them. Check this out. And look at the two words. The kindness and severity of God. To those who fell, the Israelite branches, severity. But to you, 
Gentile branches, God's kindness. Do you see severity, kindness? If you continue in His kindness, you say, uh-oh, it's a conditional thing. I know it. I know it is works. See that? If you continue, remember we did the John 15? If you abide in My Word, if you continue, it's about perseverance. Oh, it's about works, right? No, it's not. If you continue, if you do this, it will show that you have always been real. You're real from the start and you're real all the way to the end. Now, could you stumble? Could you sin? Could you do something very dastardly even? I'm not telling us that we should do that. But if you're really His, you are His forever, eternally. Uh, go to Romans 2. See, this is about the character of God. He's kind. He's gentle. He is a good God. A God of favor. Grace. And Romans chapter 2, verse 4 says, Or do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads us to what? To repentance. If you're really His, His kindness is what leads you to repent. But the next verse is about severity. But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each person according to his deeds. To those who by perseverance in doing good, these are things that show us that we're real. For glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. That's what you get. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, it's wrath and indignation. That's severity. God is so good. But He's also very severe. If you're His, you just keep trusting in Him and bearing fruit. If you're not His, you might profess it, but if you don't have any fruits, there's going to be the wrath of God upon that person because they did not persevere. They showed they weren't real. And all of this is unmerited favor. So does any reason, is there any reason that anybody, Jew or Gentiles, Gentiles especially, do they have any reason to brag at all? No. Because it's all grace. We stand in grace. I'm not going to say anything about Israel and them being cut off. Because I know that God can cut off the Gentile. He's cut off the churches all throughout history. Have we seen that? I kind of forgot about all that history. And I look back at it and I go, oh, that's what he means cut off. And eventually he will do what our Romans 11 here says, is that whenever the fulfillment of the Gentiles, when it's reached its climax, the fullness of the Gentiles, when that's come in, Israel will be saved. It's nothing but grace. Grafting back in on Israel, Robert Haldane, great reformer, in yesteryear said, 
what is not done in nature and cannot be affected by the power of man will be done by God with whom all things are possible. He is able to make the dry bones, I think of the dry bones of Ezekiel, He's able to make them live and to restore the severed branches into the nation of Israel. Because you see, and we'll read this, verse 23, they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, if they don't continue in their unbelief, if they don't do that, they will be grafted in the broken branches. For God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree, you Gentiles, if you were cut off from wild olive tree and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, if God can do that, here we go, how much more will those who are the natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? And that's Israel. That's where we leave off. That's where we'll be continuing next week. How about that? The wild branches and the natural branches. And you see the character of God there. And the nature, the very nature of God. We see His purpose, His plan, and we stand back and we say, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Let's pray. Father, holy God, My, what a demonstration of grace that you have to go to people that didn't deserve it. To go to people who were of Jewish blood. And then to go to people that were Gentile blood who hated and despised you. And then to go back to people who had despised you despite you giving every bit of revelation and still saving them. My Lord, it is so profound. It goes way beyond all the heights and the depths I can even imagine. Lord, all the glory of You. And this is what it's about. It's not about my own idea. It's not about a bunch of people's ideas. It's all about Your glory. It's about Your plan. It's about Your holiness. And we praise You for Your kindness. And we praise You for severity. Because it is right and it is good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.